This EHIV review program is presented by DKB Med Radio. So when I'm thinking about switching patients to cabropivirine, the main things that I'm looking at are making sure they don't have real pivirine resistance associated mutations and to make sure they don't have infection with subtype A1A6. Patients with elevated BMI, and if that's their only risk factor, is a little bit tricky. Newer NNRTI agents in clinical practice. Welcome to EHIV Review. Rilpivirine and Duravirine, the two most recently developed NNRTIs. They broaden treatment options for certain patients, but what are the criteria that determine patient selection? Rilpivirine plus cabotegravir provides a long-acting injectable PrEP option, but what are the risk factors associated with virologic failure with this combination? Duravirine appears to have a more favorable or less unfavorable impact on weight and lipid outcomes than many other agents. But a key concern is for whom is it appropriate? To discuss these and other questions about the best place for these non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors in ART regimens, we're joined today by Dr. Darcy Wooten from the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of California, San Diego. For our guest disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 8, Issue 6 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Wooten, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. we got a lot to talk about, so let's jump right in with our first learning objective. Discuss the risk factors associated with virologic failure with long-acting injectable cabotegravir and rapivirine. So if you would please, Dr. Wooten, take us to the clinic and start us out with a patient scenario. So we have a 56-year-old man who's been suppressed on victegravir, emtricitabine, and tenofovir alafenamide for the past four years. And he's coming to see you in clinic today and wants to switch to long-acting injectable cabotegravir and rolpivirine because he really likes the idea of not having to take a daily pill and remind him about his HIV. His baseline labs at the time he was diagnosed shows that he has infection with a subtype B. His HIV-1 genotype did demonstrate some transmitted drug resistance with the K103N mutation. He's been very adherent with his antiretroviral therapy. He's been undetectable since starting. And he does have some additional past medical history and comorbidities, including hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, CKD stage 2, and obesity. His BMI is about 37. He is immune to hepatitis B, and he doesn't have hepatitis C infection, and his other labs are within normal limits. This patient wants to switch his successful ART to a long-acting injectable cabotegravir plus rilpivirine regimen. First question, is he a good candidate? What does the guidance recommend? So currently, the DHHS guidelines support switching to long-acting cabropivirine with patients who meet the following criteria. So they're engaged in care. They've been virologically suppressed for at least three months on their oral antiretroviral therapy. They don't have chronic hepatitis B infection because this regimen doesn't have activity against hepatitis B. Um, and they're able to adhere to their clinic visits because at least under current guidance, this regimen is recommended to be administered by a clinic provider. 
Um, so this patient does appear to be a good candidate for long-acting injectable cabrolpivirine. He's virologically suppressed. He's adherent to his therapy. He doesn't have chronic hepatitis B infection. He does have the K103N mutation, which we frequently see in patients who have previously been on efavirenz. Um, but he doesn't have a history of treatment failure, um, and he doesn't have resistance to either agent in the regimen because the K103N doesn't confer resistance to real pivoting. Um, so these are the things that you would think about in transitioning this patient to long-acting injectable cabrolpivirine. Switching to long-acting injectable cabrolpivirine uh, may be right for this patient, but other patients who show a K103N mutation, what effect might that have on the clinician's approach to treatment selection? So great question. The K103N mutation itself does not confer resistance to real pivoting. So this alone wouldn't be a contraindication to this regimen. But you do want to do a very careful review for anybody that has NNRTI resistance. Um, you want to review their antiretroviral therapy, if they have any history of virologic failure, and if so, what regimen did that occur on? Um, and also just review all of the resistance testing that's available. And the reason why I highlight this is because if there's any concern that there could be additional NNRTI resistance mutations besides the K103N, then you might be cautious and want to avoid this regimen because the real pivoting with additional mutations might not be effective. But because the K103N, if the K103N mutation is the only resistance mutation that's present, real pivoting will still be active and this regimen could be used in that case. What other common mutations would disqualify patients from using long-acting injectable cab real pivoting? So the Y188L mutation does reduce real pivoting susceptibility by about fivefold. And there are other mutations that reduce real pivoting uh, susceptibility when they occur in combination with the K103N mutation, such as the L100I mutation, which in combination with K103N will reduce susceptibility by about tenfold. So these mutations would be ones where you would not use this regimen. And you would also want to avoid this regimen if there's any cabotegravir resistance mutations. Luckily, we don't see these all that frequently, but mutations such as the Q148R or the G118R mutations reduce cab susceptibility by about fivefold. So if these are present, this regimen would be contraindicated. Well, thank you for that explanation, doctor. Uh, another question. This long-acting injectable regimen, I believe you mentioned it's approved only for patients who are virologically suppressed. Is that right? That's correct. But what about using this regimen in patients with viremia? Is there data and what does it show? So long-acting injectable therapy is a very exciting prospect for patients in whom daily oral therapy just really hasn't worked for them. The caveat, and unfortunately, because of the way that the original randomized controlled trials were done looking at cabrolpivirine, and just as a reminder, these trials were the ATLAS, the FLARE, and the ATLAS 2M studies. We don't have randomized controlled trial data on the use of this regimen in patients with viremia. And because we don't have this data, this is why this regimen is not currently guideline recommended for patients who have viremia. 
it's I think also important just to note that when this regimen is used in patients with in who have viremia, this would be considered an off-label use since it's not currently part of the label indication. Now, there have been several observational studies that have demonstrated success of off-label use of cabrolpivirine in patients who have viremia. And this helps us to give some insight into whether we could potentially use this regimen in the future in patients who are viremic. What have these studies shown about this off-label use? So there were updated data that were presented at CROI 2023 from the Ward 86 demonstration project out of San Francisco led by Dr. Gandhi and all. And this demonstration project looked at the use of long-acting cabrolpivirine with potentially other strategies, including a lo another long-acting agent, lenacapavir, um, in a cohort of patients who historically had been very um, challenging to treat. Um, they had a lot of um, comorbidities and psychosocial comorbidities. Two-thirds of the patients were homeless. A third of the patients had active substance use, and about half had mental health disorders. And yet, despite all of these barriers to care in this patient population, 55 of the 57 patients who started long-acting cabrolpivirine while they were viremic were able to achieve and maintain virologic suppression. That's really impressive. The two patients who had virologic failure did develop resistance, um, but the virologic failure rate, which was about 3.5% in this study, was actually similar um, to what we saw in the initial registration trials of Atlas Flare and Atlas 2M. So a very, very impressive. There are also data from the OPERA cohort, which was another real-world observation study looking at the rollout of long-acting cabrolpivirine across 96 different clinics in the U.S. And 28 patients who were started on cabrolpivirine out of the 383 patients were actually viremic at the time of starting. Um, their viral load was greater than 200. And of those 28 patients, 20 of one whom we have data for, 91% were uh, able to achieve virologic suppression. The outcomes of the other seven patients um, who did start on cabrolpivirine weren't included in the analysis because they didn't have data that we could uh, measure. Interesting findings, doctor. So right now, what's the word on using this regimen in patients with viremia? Taken together, these data are really exciting that cabrolpivirine might be a pretty viable option for patients with viremia. I still want to highlight and emphasize that this is currently not guideline recommended and it is off-label use and really not for everybody. This should be done very, very cautiously, um, especially given the risk for resistance if patients develop virologic failure. And not only the risk of resistance, but resistance to our first-line regimen, particularly uh, integrase inhibitors. So um, this is in contrast to maybe other newer agents such as lenacapavir, which are in different classes, uh, which don't confer cross-resistance when patients develop virologic failure. So I think really exciting, um, but we need more data. We need to see what the guidelines say. And then if this is going to be used off-label, to do so very, very cautiously and with close monitoring. Let's go back to the current on-label uses of long-acting regimens, Dr. Wooten, which would be specifically cabotegravir plus rilpivirine. Uh, talk to us, if you would, please about the patient characteristics that have been shown to increase a patient's risk for virologic failure on this regimen. 
That's a really important question. And we have some nice data from a post hoc analysis that pooled data from Atlas, Flare, and Atlas 2M. And they identified several key risk factors that are associated with increased virologic failure um, on cabropivirine. You reviewed that paper in your expert commentary companion piece for this program. Summarize the key findings here for us, if you would, please. Sure. So the key risk factors for virologic failure include the following. One, if you had baseline ropivirine resistance associated mutations, and these were identified retrospectively using proviral DNA testing. Two, if you had low ropivirine trough concentrations at week eight. Three, if you had infection with HIV subtype A1A6. And then the fourth risk factor was if you had an elevated BMI greater than 30. And it was really if you had two or more of these risk factors that your risk for virologic failure dramatically increased. And it's important to remember that when individuals on this regimen develop virologic failure, they often do so with both NNRTI as well as INSTE resistance. Now, Elevated BMI was associated with increased risk of failure, but this was a really small risk, increased the risk very, uh, very small degree um, compared to the other risk factors that I mentioned. So when I'm thinking about switching patients to cabropivirine, the main things that I'm looking at are making sure they don't have ropivirine resistance associated mutations and to make sure they don't have infection with subtype A1A6. Patients with elevated BMI, and if that's their only risk factor, is a little bit tricky. So if that's their only risk factor, I don't consider it an absolute contraindication to the regimen, but I do use shared decision-making with them to make sure that they understand that there's a slightly increased risk for failure and to really make sure that this, in context with everything else that they have going on, is going to be the best regimen for them and be better than a daily oral regimen. So if I am using this regimen in patients with elevated BMI, I do make sure that when the injection's given, we're using the longer two inch needle as opposed to the shorter 1.5 inch needle because this has been associated with better trough concentrations. Um, and you know the risk, although it is slightly increased, is really minimal compared to those other risk factors. And so if this is gonna be the best regimen for this patient, I don't consider that an absolute contraindication to the regimen. Well, thank you, doctor, for bringing us this case in discussion. Let's summarize our conversation in light of our learning objective, to discuss the risk factors associated with virologic failure with long-acting injectable cabotegravir and ropivirine. Uh, Dr. Wooten, what are the key things our listeners need to know? The key things to know are, first, long-acting cabropivirine is an effective two-drug switch regimen for patients who are already virologically suppressed on oral antiretroviral therapy, who don't have resistance to either agent in the regimen, and who don't have any history of chronic hepatitis B infection. Second, the risk factors for virologic failure on this regimen include having baseline ropivirine resistance mutations, having infection with HIV subtype A1A6, having a low week eight ropivirine trough, and having an elevated BMI. And third, this regimen has been used off-label in patients who have viremia to varying degrees of success, but more data are really needed before this strategy can be generally applied widely in practice. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return 
with Dr. Darcy Wooten from UC San Diego in just a moment. It really is a very simple question. You're seeing me, CEU credits. Have you got all that you need? Because they're still available without charge from EHIV Review. Whether it's about rapid ART initiation or ART options for treatment experienced patients, long acting antivirals, or the effects of COVID 19 infection, EHIV Review delivers with expert clinical advice and analysis. Programs are accredited for nurses as well as physicians, and all programs and credits are provided without charge. Find what you need at ehivreview.org. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Program. We've been speaking with Dr. Darcy Wooten from the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of California, San Diego about the risk factors associated with virologic failure in patients treated with long-acting injectable cabotegravir and ropivirine. Let's turn now to our second learning objective. Describe the weight and metabolic effects of doravirine compared to other antiretrovirals. So if you would please, Dr. Wooten, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. So in clinic, we have a 46-year-old woman who's newly diagnosed with HIV. Her other medical issues include obesity, her BMI is 40, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and chronic venous stasis ulcers. Her baseline CBC, chemistries, renal function, liver function tests are all normal. And her CD4 cell count is 780. Her HIV viral load is 98,000. And her genotype shows no resistance mutations. She says she's heard a lot about weight gain associated with HIV medications, and she really doesn't want to take any HIV medication that might lead to an increase in her weight, even if this means starting a second-line agent. With a primary concern about weight gain, what would you consider as initial therapy for a patient like this? What does the guidance recommend? Our current guidelines recommend using either Bictegravir or Dolutegravir in combination with two NRTIs or using a two-drug regimen of Dolutegravir and Lamivudine. And all of these are our first-line regimens for most people with HIV. The recommendations are made based on these regimens' efficacy, tolerability, and durability. Bictegravir and dolutegravir are so-called second-generation integrase inhibitors or INSTEs, have a high genetic barrier to resistance, which is important, especially if we're starting antiretroviral therapy on the same day as diagnosis and we don't have an HIV genotype back. At the same time, we know that both our second-generation INSTEs, dolutegravir and bictegravir, as well as tenofovir alafenamide or TAF compared to TDF are associated with more weight gain as well as more metabolic complications compared to other classes of medications. So as always, antiretroviral therapy really needs to be individualized to patients within the context of guideline recommendations. Our learning objective focuses on deravirine. Would you consider it for this patient? What are the pluses and minuses? Duravirine is the newest NNRTI, and it has advantages over another NNRTI, Ropivirine, in that it doesn't have food requirements for absorption, 
It also doesn't have the drug-drug interactions with acid-reducing agents that we, we see with ropivirine. As you'll remember, ropivirine requires really an acidic environment in order to be properly absorbed. And so people taking proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers, which are very easily accessible over-the-counter medications, can have impaired absorption of ropivirine, and this can lead to resistance. Deraverine also contains activity against some NNRTI resistance mutations, and it comes co-formulated as a fixed-dose single tablet regimen of deraverine, lamivudine, and TDF. And I'll just point out that the co-formulated regimen includes the older version of tenofovir TDF or tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, which has more bone and renal toxicity compared to our newer version of tenofovir, tenofovir alafenamide or TAF. TDF is, however, associated with a more favorable lipid profile. Um, but because of the increased renal toxicity, TDF is not recommended to be used in patients whose creatinine clearance is less than or equal to 50. What do the data show about deraverine's effects on this patient's primary concern, weight gain? Beneficial weight and lipid outcomes were seen in a post hoc analysis of the DRIVE studies, DRIVE Forward, DRIVE Ahead, and DRIVE Shift. And just as a reminder, the DRIVE studies were randomized controlled trials comparing a deraverine-containing regimen to a non-deraverine-containing regimen in either treatment-naive individuals, those were the DRIVE-forward and DRIVE-ahead studies, or as a switch um, approach in virologically suppressed patients, as was the case for DRIVE-shift. So the pooled analysis from these three DRIVE studies looked at changes in body weight from baseline in deraverine-containing regimens compared to uh, regimens with other agents like efavirenz and boosted darunavir. And they found that there was no difference in weight gain between the groups at week 48 and 96. We don't currently have data that directly compares weight and metabolic outcomes between deraverine and second-generation INSTEs. And we also don't have data from studies such as the DO-IT trial, which is currently enrolling, um, in which patients who have gained weight on a second-generation INSTE get randomized to either continue that regimen or to switch to a deraverine-containing regimen. We're very eagerly awaiting the results of these data because that will tell us whether switching to a deraverine-containing regimen will have any impact and be beneficial on the weight gain that we see associated with second-generation INSTEs. So for this patient, Dr. Wooten, 46 years old, newly diagnosed with HIV and no resistance mutations, what would you recommend? So for this patient, like most patients, I would recommend one of the first-line regimens while simultaneously addressing her weight issues, getting her to see a dietitian, uh, potentially getting started on medication therapy for weight. But if she was still reluctant to start antiretroviral therapy and tells me I'm not taking HIV medications if it's going to really impact my weight, I would offer her deraverine 3TC TDF since she doesn't have any contraindications to this regimen. In general, what benefits besides the weight and metabolic outcomes we've been talking about do you consider when selecting a regimen like deraverine, lamivudine, TDF for your patients? Well, in comparison to our first-line regimens with second-generation INSTEs, the deraverine-containing regimen doesn't have as high of a genetic barrier to resistance. 
So for patients who have no baseline resistance, who are extremely consistent with taking their medications, this really isn't an issue and this regimen is going to work great for them. But for patients who don't do great with taking their antiretrovirals daily, who have barriers to adherence, um, and or who have underlying resistance, I would worry about virologic failure with this deravirine-containing regimen and really think about a different regimen for them. In what other clinical settings would you consider using deravirine? That's a great question, and I, I use deravirine a fair amount. Um, outside of weight and metabolic considerations, I've typically used deravirine in combination with other agents for my treatment experience patients. Deravirine retains activity against viruses that have other NNRTI mutations, including the K103N mutation, Y181C, G190A, a combined K103N with a Y181C, and the E138K. So in patients who maybe have extensive NRTI and NNRTI resistance, I might consider using a combination of Bictegravir FTC-TAF with deravirine to ensure that their regimen has at least two and a half, ideally three active agents. Deravirine is also being looked at in combination with the weekly oral experimental agent Islatravir. Islatravir is a first-in-class nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor, and data on this combination regimen from phase two trials looks to be very promising. Of course, we'll have to wait additional data and approval before this agent can be used. Thank you, Dr. Wooten. Our learning objective is to describe the weight and metabolic effects of deravirine compared to other antiretrovirals. What are the key things you'd want our learners to take away from our discussion? The key things to take away are the following. First, patients receiving a deravirine-containing regimen had similar and actually quite favorable weight and lipid outcomes compared to patients who are receiving an efavirenz or a boosted darunavir-containing regimen. Second, despite the favorable and lipid outcomes that we see with deravirine, Switching patients to deravirine who have gained weight on an INSTI-containing regimen is not yet currently recommended by guidelines because we just don't have the data. Third, deravirine does have some downsides, such as a lower genetic barrier to resistance compared to second-generation INSTIs, and it only comes co-formulated with TDF, not TAF, so that might be problematic for patients with renal or bone disease. And finally, deravirine paired with Islatravir is a new and exciting regimen that looks promising in early phase studies. From the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of California, San Diego, Dr. Darcy Wooten, thank you for joining us in today's eHIV review program. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For eHIV review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Merkin Company, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med LLC. Thank you for listening.